listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. This morning, in turning to our passage, we'll be reading from Exodus 3, 17 through 14, 31. It will be an extended passage this morning. I will not be doing the first 13 verses of Exodus. That was basically a reiteration of some of what Joshua covered last week in the story of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we'll be picking up this morning in Exodus 13, verse 17, and I'll be reading all the way through the end of chapter 14. So it is extended, so bear with me. It should be on your screen, or if you're uh, with someone, maybe join in looking at the scriptures. I would encourage you to be thinking about the scriptures as we read this story so that you might hear God's word to you this morning. So Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had, been made, the son, uh, had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth to the encamp and encamped at Etham, at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh toward the king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all the uh, Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
And Moses said to the people, uh, uh, sorry, what have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten Pharaoh, gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night between, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry land, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and, water may and, and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw, or literally shook off, the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed him into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power or the hand of God that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and thank God for his word. God, we thank you for your word, even in a, an extended passage like this. We ask that we would hear you speak to us, that we would hear your words of grace, that we would hear these words of fear not and see the salvation of the Lord, that, we would, that, that this would engender faith in us this morning and not fear. So we ask that for each person listening uh, with others in pers uh, together, or just listening online by themselves. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where your back was up against the wall? 
maybe literally or physically, or maybe you're just in a tough situation and you thought, I, I can't get out of this. I'm trapped in on both sides. Maybe you felt that way. I've, I've felt that way. You could feel that way emotionally, or you could have been in a situation where you literally were trapped. Th this is the situation in which Israel fi finds themselves in this passage, trapped in on both sides. Douglas Stewart says this, the Israelites had much to learn. They operated with the usual assumptions of most people trying to understand the workings of God. That is, a good and powerful God would hardly allow his people to go through troubles, dangers, griefs, and testings, would he? Their reasoning led them naturally to think if, if God's all-powerful and can oppress the Egyptians through the plagues while sparing us, his people, entirely, we can now expect him to take care of all our wants and all our desires just as we define them, can't we? Is that you this morning? Are you expecting God to take care of your wants and desires as you define them? Think about that. Are you expecting God to take care of your wants and desires as you define them? And then secondly, how would you even define those wants? How would you define those desires? What we'll see this morning from this passage, this is the main point this morning. The way God saves his people is always through unexpected and undeserved ways. The way God saves his people, his salvation is always through unexpected and an undeserved way. This main point today is, is in some way mainly a theological point. It's a point about who God is. It's not a point about who we are. There, there'll be application. Um, I'm not going to try to hit every point of application. The Spirit can do that. But I want to drive home the point that I think the author of this uh, book, Exodus, to us, and that God is trying to tell us, is this a theological point. It's something we're supposed to learn about God through an object lesson of the Red Sea. Uh, last week, Joshua gave us an object lesson um, with a big pot in front of us. Uh, I was hoping Luke Zappa was going to pop out of that, but Luke did not. Um, and I told Joshua, I sent him a text after, and I, I said, uh, I, you, you, your object lessons get bigger and bigger. I'm going to have a hard time doing this unless I get in the Allegheny River for this uh, object lesson. So I'm not going to do an object lesson, but I loved what Joshua's point was, is he was giving us an object lesson of the object lesson God gave Israel of the Passover. And again, he gave him 10 object lessons, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And now he's like, let me give you another object lesson because it seems like you're having trouble believing me. And this object lesson of the Red Sea. They had just gone through these 10 plagues and seen God's power and then seen God's power in the Passover and the imagery there. that There had to be a sacrifice. Something had to die so they could live. An object lesson is, a, is a, a physical representation of a spiritual reality. And so, from this object lesson of the Red Sea, we learn something about the works of God and the ways of God. That's what, we, that's what we're supposed to take from this. Who is God? The story isn't here for us to focus on you know, where's the location of the Red Sea, you know, how deep was the water? Was it 10 feet deep, 100 feet deep? How dry was the water? How did all those chariots get in there? How many chariots did he have? That's not the point. The author isn't trying to prove that this was a miraculous event. He assumes it's a miraculous event. This is the assumption here is God is doing something miraculous. He wants us to learn something about God this morning. And that is the way God saves his people is always through the unexpected and undeserved ways. And in saving his people, God shows his superiority, or as he says it, his glory. 
It's his superiority. That's what that means. God wants the glory. God says, I want you to know I'm superior over both Egypt and Israel. He says not just Egypt. He wants Israel to know I'm superior over you as well as both a judge of Egypt and as a savior of Israel. God wants to get the glory. So two points this morning, if you're taking notes, God leads his people in unexpected ways. So we'll look at God's leading. And then secondly, God saves his people with undeserved grace. So God's salvation. And those two points should pop up on the uh, slides as we go through this morning. So first of all, God leads his people in unexpected ways. God doesn't lead Israel here in verse 17, through chapter 13, verse 17, down the expected path, does he? He doesn't lead them the way uh, you, would, you would think he should. It says in verse 17 that he skipped the way that was near. Like this should be, these should be cues. This is a story, and as, uh, and as any good story, we should take the cues and go, oh, this is interesting. This is not what I would have expected on an escape route. He did not take them the way that was near, verse 17. Verse 18, he says he led them around. Another cue of, hey, we're not going the way that would seem like it makes the most sense. This is not intuitive. This is not expected. And then chapter 14, verse 2, he, he tells them to camp by the sea. Face the sea. That seems like not the right way when you don't have boats. Why would you uh, camp by the sea? Go around. Go the long way instead of the near way. This isn't the type of instructions we like to get, right? Um, if you are newer to Pittsburgh, or if you could think of it when you first moved to Pittsburgh, this is one of the things you hate quickly about Pittsburgh, is there's, is there's no near route. Everything's around. Everything's zigzag. That you're, you're just like, I'm lost. I don't know where I'm going. I feel hemmed in. So God's plan doesn't seem to make sense at all at face value to Israel. And he knows this won't make sense to them. Um, I may have used this illustration before. Um, Sorry if I have, but uh, my wife and I went to a small little Christian college that had this motto, uh, funny enough, in their promotional materials. So this seems like a weird marketing campaign, but their uh, promotional materials, the motto at that time was God never promised an easy path. And on all the posters, it would have like a guy scaling Mount Everest or some lady like um, zip lining down a glacier. And you're like, it, it, we got the point. Like, if you're going to come here, this is going to be hard. Basically, because it was in the middle of nowhere at that time. But like, this isn't going to be easy. This is going to be hard. But it's a true biblical point. It's a true theological point that God's working in life. He never promised that it would be easy. God never promised an easy path. God's salvation of his people is never an easy path. It involves trials. It involves difficulty. It involves a death in some way. That's why Jesus, when you look in the New Testament, I think I just hit the mic. Sorry if y'all got like a big sound there. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says it this way. So we can always see this continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus says it this way. If anyone would come after me, if you're going to follow me, you're going to follow Jesus across the Red Sea, the better mediator than Moses. If you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He says, this isn't going to be easy. You're going to take up a cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So to follow the leading hand of God is to follow him into difficulty. Here in this story with Israel and today following Jesus. Maybe it's even into death. At least a death to self, Jesus says. Dying to yourself. A death to ease. 
God's leading, though, ties into his sovereignty, which is all throughout this passage, his control, his power, as it says, or the hand of God, which represents his power, his right hand. He shows his power all throughout this passage. What, what seemed unexpected to Israel was not unexpected to God, though, right? Because he had a plan the whole time. Israel doesn't have a plan. What seemed unplanned to Israel was not unplanned to God. This seems unplanned to Israel. That's why they start complaining. But God says, I have a plan. I had a plan all along. He actually, like, we're reading this, and he's tell, we, we actually hear it beforehand. He's like, this is going to happen. I'm going to do it for this reason, and now this is going to happen. Like, we don't even get that information from God at this point in history ourselves. They, get, they know God's telling them what's going to happen. They still are tr- struggling to have faith in God. What seemed unplanned to Israel was not unplanned to God. Have you ever realized that God never goes, oh, wait, I didn't think about that. Whoops. Like, how many times have you done that? You probably do that weekly, if not daily. Oh, wait, I didn't think about that. I did that this week. I, I, I knew I had to prepare to preach for Sunday, and then uh, my brother came into town, which I knew, but I went, oh, wait, I didn't think about that. I'm going to have less time to prepare than I thought, right? Because we're human. We're fallible. We make mistakes. We don't plan well. We don't calculate well. We don't put everything together, and we end up in situations where we thought, oh, wow, I didn't know that was going to happen. I forgot to do this. I didn't recognize this was going to happen. God never goes, oh, wait, I didn't know about that. I didn't think about that. God's leading involves his knowledge of the future. That's so clear here. He knew, he knew that Israel would change their minds and want to return to Egypt. He predicts this ahead of time. And no matter how much Pharaoh, this whole, all through Exodus, up to this whole point, Pharaoh seemed, has this false sense of control nonstop. Originally, and then the second Pharaoh that comes along, like every, all these kings in Israel's life, I think they have control. But God is the director of this play. He says, you, I, will, I want to show you who is superior. Look at the audacity of uh, Pharaoh and Uh, chapter 14, verse 5. He says this, What is this that we have done, speaking of himself in Egypt, that we have let Israel go from serving us? He still thinks he let them go, right? God gave him 10 plagues, right? Kills the firstborn. And at the end of it, he's like, yeah, I let them go. What have I done? I let them go. He thinks that he let them go. When in reality, God freed the people. God was leading. God was working. God's leading is never overcome by man's letting. God's leading is never overcome. God's leading here is not overcome by anything Pharaoh has done or will do now. Pharaoh has no idea that his pursuit here is only going to lead him into a trap, which is God's judgment on sin. But here's the thing. As a sovereign God, his leading is not done from afar. I know that that might sound, you know, for some of you may think of God being a a powerful God or a sovereign God, um, that, that may give you thoughts of a distant God, a God that's sort of just callously doing things, and but not near. But it's so, what's interesting here is in the midst of his control and his clear leading is that he's present with his people through this, another object lesson, this physical representation of himself in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire during day and night, representing his compassion and his care, that God is near, God is with you. He's, he's saying that, like, I know, Israel, that you're going to be confused, and the directions I'm going to give you don't make sense. 
So I'm gonna put up the GPS right in front of you and know I'm with you this whole time and you're gonna follow it. At night, you're not gonna be confused in the dark. You're gonna have fire. God is present with his people. He's protecting them. That the pillar of fire and cloud in verse 19 actually moves behind them to create a barrier between them and Egypt. So God's with them. He's present. He's compassionate. He's near. He's protecting. He's not just sovereign, but he's near. He's not just far and powerful. He's imminent and near. Victor Hamilton says this, all the fears that God addresses with Israel are normal and real. And I think we need to remember that. Our fears are are often normal in real fears. I know we can have uh, irrational fears at times, but often our fears are real fears. They are not illusory, Victor Hamilton says. God does not lie to us about danger, nor does he plant in us the idea that they are figments of our imagination. What he reminds us is, is that in order for these frightening situations to get to us, they will first have to get past him. We can rest, not because of the absence of danger, but because of a God in whom we can trust. I love that, that statement there, that they must first get past him. God says, Israel, this isn't going to be safe. There's going to be danger, but they, this has to get past me first. And by the way, I, I'm with you. I'm near you. I'm in control. I'm leading you. I'm not confused. I didn't go whoops. God had his people right where he wanted them to be. Not necessarily where they wanted to be, right? That's clear. They don't want to be here. Right where God wants them to be. Where he wanted them to be was a place of weakness. He wanted them to see their need and only hope was in God. They're weak and God is strong. That without him, they're hopeless. John Bloom says this, we may not realize what it means for God to be our strength until, until we're weak enough that he's our only option. We may not realize what it means for God to be our strength until we're weak enough that he's our only option. Think about even our lives right now, how this many things get stripped, your schedules get stripped. And, you, and I know for me, you, we, we know God's in control, but for some reason we think we still are like manipulating our schedules. But then when everything gets axed, you're like, I really can't control anything. Wow, like nothing is in my control. I'm, I'm at the whim of so many things around me. And that reminds us of our weakness and that God is our only option. But secondly, not only does God lead us in unexpected ways, so he's leading in an unexpected way. Secondly, God saves his people with undeserved grace. And this is where the passage culminates, that God saves his people with undeserved grace. It's the main point of this chapter, chapter 14. And that might sound redundant. I hope it does, undeserved grace or free grace or unmerited grace. You might think, well, that's just saying the same thing. But we often think uh, even humanly and human transaction, relational transactions, much less with God, that we deserve that gift that we're getting, that we deserve God's grace. But God's grace is unmerited. That's what he wants Israel to know right now, that what he's doing with them, they don't deserve. They're not better than Egypt. What are the, what are the, so what are, what are some of the things we see about God's salvation here? Because Moses says, Israel, don't fear. See the salvation of the Lord. What does Moses and what does God want us to see? Well, let's look at the context here for a moment so we can draw these things out. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 10. It says that Pharaoh draws near to Israel. 
Now, interestingly, right, God has already said, I'm near and I'm present with you in very physical and tangible ways. The moment Pharaoh draws near to them, they fear greatly, it says. They become afraid and, and fear greatly. They cry out to the Lord. I want to pause here because I love uh, the, the fact that they do cry out to God, which is actually an evidence of their faith. At the end of this chapter, it says that they end believing, trusting God. And Hebrews 12 tells us that their com- Israel's commended for their faith, which if you're just reading Hebrews, you're like, oh, they had great faith. If you're reading the story, you're like, did they really have faith? Like, they seem like they're complaining. But the fact that they pause and then they go, they're crying out to God. Even in their complaint, they reveal faith that God is the only one that can get them out of this. Who do you cry out to even in the midst of confusion? It sounds like this in our lives, maybe. God, I know that you're in control and have the power to change this, so I want to let you know that I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what's happening right now, and can you get me out of this? Because you're the only one that can do that, right? And it sounds duplicitous, like, get me out of this. I know you're in control, but that's kind of what Israel's saying. Like, we know you got us into this, God. So they're, they're already admitting his superiority, his glory, they're just saying this doesn't this isn't what we expected. We don't like this. Their faith isn't perfect, which isn't what saves them. Their faith isn't what saves them. The God of their faith is their salvation. So they complain. They say, "Have you brought us out here to die?" This is their complaint. God, you brought us out here just to die. Can you just take us back to Egypt? They wish for the good old days. Normally the good old days are normally not good old days when people talk about that. That's normally like some figment of their imagination. Interestingly, they say, they say that we told you, Moses, to just leave us alone and, le- and let us stay here. When you, if you remember and read back, they actually were like, you know, like, we trust you, Moses, and we're, we're going to follow you. And it says they had great, they had faith. So they're actually like sort of re- misremembering the things that like, no, they actually had faith. They actually had said, Moses, we're going to follow you. But in the midst of their, their confusion, they're saying, take us back. Take us back to slavery. So think how t- like, odd that sounds. Take us back to the oppression. They wish for the past. So Moses responds with this, fear not and see the salvation of the Lord. He says, watch God save you. God has already saved you. He said, he, I, he brought you out. The blood went over the door mantle. This was a sign of God's salvation, a, a foreshadowing, a forepointing to the lamb that would be their salvation. They're already saved. He's like, I already have you. You're already mine. Look at his salvation. It's continuing. You think you have this all figured out, Israel, but you don't. You think you know better than him, but you don't. So we see what Moses wants them to know is that God's salvation is of the Lord, not man. He says, look in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. So what does the salvation of the Lord look like? Which he will work for you today. God's work. God does a work. He said, the Lord will fight for you. He doesn't say you will fight for him. He says, God will do the work. That is God's grace, God's unmerited favor, God's unmerited grace. 
He doesn't ask them to fight. He doesn't ask them to work. He says, God will do the work for you, not your works, not your fighting. This passage isn't just about God's power. You could go through and say, wow, God's, uh, God's amazing. Look at these things he's doing. These are extraordinary events. And that's true. We do see his power all throughout the story. But it's not just his power for power's sake. It's not just a magic show. It's not just shock and awe. It's not just power to show power. It's there to show both God's justice and his grace. Through God's power, he displays justice against sin and grace over sin. Both aspects of his character which bring him glory. His justice and his grace bring him glory. God didn't fight for Israel because they deserved it. Uh, uh, Later in Deuteronomy, it says this, It was not because you were more in number, than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He's like, I just want to remind you, you weren't that great, all right? I didn't choose you. I didn't love you because you were great. But it is because the Lord loves you. It's just because I loved you. And nothing, that's what unconditional love, there's no condition in it other than I just chose to love you out of grace. Just think about that. Unconditional love, that's what unconditional love is, this. I just loved you. You didn't do anything to draw it out of me. I just loved you out of God's own abounding love. That's overwhelming. That means you cannot do anything to merit his grace or lose his favor as his child. That's what it means to be held in the Father's hand. He says, I didn't put, you didn't put yourself in my hand. I put you in my hand. No one can pluck you from it. But it is Deuteronomy, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He says, I started this. I'm keeping my promise that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That this was what Israel continued to hear after they got out of Egypt. I saved you out of love and out of grace, not out of who you are. God didn't fight for Israel because they deserved it. God fighting for you isn't intended to produce confidence in yourself, but confidence in God. When, you, when we say, God must, God fight for us, God do this for us, it's not intended to produce confidence in me, but humility. But I know that's not the way we often think about a phrase like that. I will fight for you. Like if you hire a lawyer and he says, I'm going to fight for you. You know, I'm going to get money for you. It's because he's kind of saying you deserve it, right? Um, you're worth it. You deserve this. And, and we might say that to people. I'm going to fight for you. You're worth it. You have some inherent value or you've done something and I'm going to be with you in this. But that's not what's happening here. God's not saying you're worth it or you deserve this. He says, my glory is worth it. And I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. You actually deserve the opposite, just like the Egyptians. This is the beauty of the gospel in the Old Testament, the good news. And that crescendos to the New Testament that we read earlier, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were good. While we were still sinners. Um, Also in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. God justifies, God declares righteous those who are ungodly. So he declares not guilty those who are guilty. To the one who doesn't work, 
This is the same message. The Old Testament message gives us the same message that Jesus does. There's continuity. The gospel is there for us. It's the same gospel to Israel as it is to us today. John Bloom says this, we want to be strong in a way that reflects well on us often. I want to be strong so that I, I look great, but God wants our strength to reflect well on him. And that in, in Israel's life here, he's saying, I'm going to be strong for you to reflect well on me for my glory. That was the whole, for my glory, not the, so you look at, that's why I, I feel this when I don't feel strong or feel weak or I failed in some area or I'm not good at something or I sin and I'm like, wow. We, we can be kind of like, oh man, I'm terrible. You know, I'm, I'm not, we can just kind of be self-loathing because we think we don't look good in that area anymore. I'm not as good as that, at that thing as I thought it was. I'm not as strong at that thing as I thought it was. I, I'm, you know, I really struggle with that sin. And I didn't, I thought I was better than that. And that's, that's that pride welling up. God says, I, I don't want strength to make you look good. I want my strength to make me look good. God wants the glory. Now you might be thinking maybe, uh, Maybe you're newer to the Christian faith or you're listening today and you're maybe skeptical of some of this and you think, well, no, Andrew, that sounds a little egotistical. Like God's like, uh, give me glory. I'm superior. Is that egotistical or arrogant of God? Well, we could probably spend a lot of time talking about that. But what, the reason we don't like that with people we interact with is that we don't know anyone that actually deserves all the glory. You've never met a person that actually deserves all the praise and attention. No matter how good they're at something, you're like, well, you still learned that from someone. You got your gifts from the creator, at least, or you stand, we use the language of you stand on the shoulders of someone. You don't actually deserve the glory. But God actually, he is the singular point of all things. There's nothing he depends on. There's no one for him to go, I stand on your shoulders and you kind of have you. It, God doesn't need to be humble. God calls us to be humble because we're creatures. God doesn't need to be humble in that way. Humility is, is uh, pride is wrong because we don't deserve the glory. God deserves the glory and credit for all things because he's the source. He's the sustainer of all things. In, in, in a very minute way, if you, know, if you made an object and I took the glory for that and said, look, look, look what I did, you'd be like, that would be wrong because you're like, I get, I get credit for that. I did that thing. And we inherently know that. But even those things, you know, well, I actually learned how to do that from someone. God didn't learn anything from anyone. Unlike humanity, when God takes the credit, he's not robbing anyone else of glory. He didn't take that glory from anyone. Wayne Grudem says, what's wrong for man is actually right for God. There's many ways in which we can be like God. And we should say, God's like this and I should be like that. But this is one area where we should not aspire to be like God. We should not try to seek glory. We don't follow God in this way because God is the only one that gets the glory. That's how God's different than us. God shares in his attributes with us. We can be loving, compassionate, we can be just, but we cannot seek glory. God is unique in that way. It would be wrong for God not to pursue his glory. It would not be for our good if he stopped doing that. He would stop being God. So what does he say here to Israel in verse 14? He says, I want you to shut your mouths. All right? He says, only be silent. Or as a parent might say, shut up and move. Right? Just go. Like, we're not going to talk about this thing. Just go. 
Or maybe as a, uh, someone in the military says, you know, just go. I mean, we're not going to fight about this. I'm telling you what to do, and we're going to do this thing. We don't have time to talk about this. Move. Only be silent. We have nothing to offer God in our salvation. Our, again, don't say anything. Stop fighting. Stop trying to work. Stop talking. Just do what I told you to do. I will fight for you. I'm your salvation. We sing a song at Renaissance sometimes, Rock of Ages, and it says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing. Empty hands. Put it down this morning. Stop working. Stop fighting. Be silent. What's in your hands this morning? What are you holding on to? That you, you, can you say nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling? Or, or you actually like, a couple things I bring in my hands and then I'm also holding on to the cross. Nothing in our hands. What are you working and agitated by that you need to put down? Where's the fighting happening where you're not trusting God's salvation? Maybe look at your words because God tells Israel, be silent. Your words might reveal regret in your life, that I regret this thing, and, and you re- you're constantly talking about it because you're like, maybe I can be better than that and stop doing that or make that thing not happen, and that'll make me more righteous and feel better about myself. And God says, put that down. That's not, no matter how good you become, that's not your righteousness. Or maybe it's complaints, and you're just, you know, my wife rebuked me about my complaining yesterday. I, I'm complaining, and it's revealing sort of a self-righteousness. Things just aren't right, and I've got to get these things right. You guys, stop, stop. Shut your mouth. Stop fighting. Stop, com- stop working. Where is that self-righteousness that's still there? Even as a believer, even though you are right with God, you, you, you're like Israel, and the blood's already been put over the door mantle. You're already saved. You, you're, you have a right standing with God. But we still struggle with this kind of default mechanism of, I've got to do something. This isn't a story about Israel being good and Egypt being bad. That's not what we should take away. Wow, look how bad Egypt was and look how good Israel was. And God saved Israel for their being a great nation. Pharaoh is responsible for his sin, but Israel's no less of a sinner. That's so clear. God, like, they complain nonstop. They're sinning. And while faith is a core requirement of a follower of God in the Old Testament and today where Jesus compels to say, follow me, repent and believe. While faith is a core requirement of a follower of God, it is not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. Israel's faith was obviously weak. Look at, look at their complaining. Their salvation, though, was found in the forward-looking lamb, the Passover lamb. That was their salvation, not their faith. It's the God of their faith, their Savior. But while God seeks his glory through salvation, he's also glorified through judgment. I think that we want to see the somberness in this passage as well, which is a warning to anyone. Maybe today you've been thinking through, like, I don't know. I'm not sure what I really think about Jesus. I'm not sure what I think about the Bible. There's a warning here. God's judgment is intended to spur us into faith, to trust him as our Savior, that we might cry out to God and not be like Egypt that rejected God, 
They had no interest in crying out to God. Crying out to God is an evidence of faith. He says here that the Egyptians will know that he is God. That's what at the beginning of chapter 14. I'm going to do this, and they're going to know that I'm God. And so by the, by, by the time you get to verse 25, what does it say? In verse 25, it says, And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They're, they're confessing that the Lord fights for Israel. See, God's like, I told you that we're going to say that. God wants the glory. God will get the praise. God will get the attention through both salvation of Israel and in this case through the judgment of Egypt. He still got praise from those who were rejecting him to the end. So God's judgment on Egypt is just because he is a God of justice and he can't let evil slide. It must be dealt with. This isn't whimsical anger. This isn't out of control anger. It's just wrath. Just anger. But how can he be just and let Israel go free? Why did, if he's a just God and sin is wrong, why, why didn't he just wipe everyone out there? Because of his grace and compassion to Israel. It was through grace, unmerited grace. Again, unconditional love. It was through the lamb. Not just an animal, but through a true and better lamb. The lamb to which that Passover lamb was pointing. The only lamb that could ever save. The lamb to which this lamb that they sacrificed pointed. The lamb of God, as John says, that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus. It's the one whom Matthew says in his gospel. He says this. This was to fulfill, and speaking of uh, Jesus and his parents, actually go to Egypt, it says. Matthew chapter 2, they, they go to Egypt, and it says this. This was to fulfill, this trek to Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Jesus went into, into Egypt to fulfill this idea that he would be the one that then leaves Egypt. Jesus, who fled with his family to Egypt, then left Egypt. He exited for the cross as the perfect lamb of God. Israel's exodus from Egypt was a departure from bondage. It was into freedom. But Jesus' exodus out of Egypt was a departure towards bondage. It's a reversal. Israel comes out. God's son, as they're often called in the Old Testament, comes out of bondage. And Jesus goes out of Egypt into bondage to Jerusalem. Do you see? Like He's going into the bondage so that they can come out of that freedom. Again, see the connectedness of all of Scripture. It, it, beauty. You couldn't even make that up. This is written like it's unbelievable. Like that, the, the connectedness of all Scripture. Written over centuries. Jesus' exodus was the one that saved the people of God in the Old Testament. And it's Jesus' exodus that saves us today. And the call to us today is the same. It's the same call that Moses said to Israel. Believe. Put your faith in God. Put your faith in Jesus. Like Egypt, you can glorify God without trusting God. And that's the warning. God will get the glory you may say, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm going to reject God. I will not give him glory. God says, I'll get glory anyways. Like Egypt, you can glorify God without trusting him, but you'll be destroyed in his just wrath, his just anger, because he's a good judge. Like any good judge, we would expect to execute 
vengeance and wrath, we wouldn't hold that against them. We'd say, that's the right decision, judge. I'm glad you did that. We would be upset if you didn't. God will get the glory either way, through either salvation or judgment. So this morning, put down the works in your hands. Put them down. Stop fighting. It seems like a weird battle plan. That was God's battle plan. It was his salvation plan. This isn't just about a battle. This isn't just a historical narrative. Oh, interesting. They were in the Red Sea, and this, is, this isn't a military plan. This was a spiritual lesson. Stop your fighting. Be silent. Stop working. Stop. You cannot earn my favor. You're weak. You need me. I'm big. I'm great. I will get the glory. And as, as Moses says to the people, see the salvation of the Lord. See how God saves his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your salvation.